Thank you, Paul. <laughs> so welcome, uh, I'm Mark, and this is E3, and we are continuing our journey through the book of Philippians, which is actually not a book, but it is a letter, and it is a letter written by a guy named Paul, who was in prison in, uh, in Rome, and he was writing it to a church in uh, Philippi. And just knowing that this letter was written by someone who was in chains, who, who was in prison because of the gospel, and because he was relentlessly pursuing living a life that was worthy of the gospel, hopefully can give us some clues on how we can uh, better live our lives, how we can better uh, be ambassadors of Christ, how we can better bring glory to God. Today we're going to be in chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 13. Now, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 13 is a passage of Scripture that actually has had the most impact in my life. This passage of Scripture has taught me how to... Uh, advance through adversity has taught me how to transcend situational faith and and to exist in relationship with with our Father and trust in Him and hopefully as we go through it today that it'll encourage you perhaps maybe because you are withstanding the winds of adversity right now in your life. Or perhaps it will give you the tools when the winds start blowing in your life that you can transcend your circumstance and also have faith in your relationship with God and his people. So if you open up your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 4. And Paul starts out, remember, he's sitting in prison writing this. He says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. And I think that this is just a great way of how he, he starts this off, this idea of like always be full of the joy. I say it again, rejoice. And, and hopefully, maybe you were like thinking, how? You know, or, or how can he possibly feel this way? How can you be full of joy in an adverse situation? And in his situation, he didn't know if he was going to be executed or not. And he's saying, look, you know what, in this circumstance, still have joy. If you remember back in chapter three in verse one, he said, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things and I do it to safeguard your faith. So what is he trying to safeguard your faith from? And here's the reality of those of us who have situational faith, we're like that, that, you know what, when things happen, it really disrupts us. If we think, you know, by becoming a Christian, everything is going to be peaches and cream. If everything's going to be sex and caviar, that we are going to uh, come up against a situation that will eventually destroy our faith. But if we have a joy that transcends situational faith, if we have a joy that is based in our relationship, then we can rejoice and our faith will be safeguarded. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, he continues on and says, Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. 
Remember the Lord is coming soon. And he's here again, once again, shifting from just a vertical me and Jesus type faith to the point where he's saying, you know what? It's not just me and Jesus, but there's a whole community that we are, he- we are saved by grace, but we are saved for a purpose. And into in that purpose to be considerate to everyone around you. To not just boldly go forth and just say no one else matters, but say, you know what? The reality is that my relationship with God matters as much as it matters, or my relationship with God means as much to him as, as my relationship with one another. So how does this safeguard your faith, as he says in verse one in chapter three, or how does, how does this uh, defend your faith? How does a culture of joy and respect defend your faith? Well, he talks about it in this way and throughout scripture that it defends your faith from pettiness and despair and hypercriticism and division. And you might be saying, well, how? how? How does living a life that is in the joy of the Lord, in that relationship, and, and having respect for one another defend your faith? And the reality is, is we make allowances for one another's faults when we are focusing on Christ and, and our faith, and we are focusing on being considerate, that, that doesn't leave room for pettiness. It doesn't leave room for despair. It doesn't leave room for a culture of hyper-criticism. And hyper-criticism always leads to division. I actually love how the prophet Isaiah puts this in Isaiah 61. He talks about it this way. He says, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the metaphor of putting on clothing uh, to represent holiness, to represent righteousness, is a common theme through Scripture. It it really taps into that thing that that each and every one of us experience uh, in, in everyday life, that we dress to prepare ourselves to go into a certain situation. Tomorrow, Monday, most of you uh, will be going to work. And when you go to work, you know, you dress in a certain way, right? Which is probably different than how you'll be dressed, to, or that you're dressed today or you'll be dressed this afternoon. You dress in a certain way to, to prepare yourself, uh, not only just externally, but internally as well. That, you know, some, some of you will put on a tie and because that is the preparation. You know, when we play sports, we do this. We, we prepare by putting on the proper uh, attire. You know, uh, yesterday I was on my bike. I, I, I like to cycle. I think you all know that. And, and when I, you know, I didn't cycle in desert boots, jeans, in a, in a black shirt. No, I wore spandex, you know, uh, but... It, you know, because I'm considerate to all of you. I did not wear my spandex today. <laughs> I, I dress differently. And it just, it, it's not so much, it, 
you know, being considerate, but is being putting on the clothing and putting on the mindset that you are getting prepared to do the things that you are set out to do. And we do this in, in many different ways. This is why it's a powerful metaphor when we're thinking about living a life worthy of the gospel that we put on righteousness, that we put on holiness. Paul continues in verse six and he says, don't worry about anything, instead pray about everything. I learned this uh, scripture in the NIV where uh, it's translated, be anxious for nothing. And I actually think that that's a, a little more close to probably the emotion that, that Paul is trying to strike at. That, you know, yeah, we can, we can worry about, you know, don't worry about things. But this idea of not having anxiety about something, maybe just because I've been entrusted with anxiety and, and depression, that maybe that strikes a little bit closer to home. But when you think about anxiety, like it, it's all consuming. When, when so you start having anxiety that, that everything else fades away and you don't have any peace, that your, your mind is being attacked, your, your, you know, your whole perspective and worldview is messed up. And, and he's saying, look, don't have anxiety for nothing. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for what you, what he has done. Then you experience God's peace, which exceeds all anything we can understand. And his peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And here we have this powerful kind of few scriptures that starts to go into a practical aspect of this verse uh, for when the winds of adversity are blowing through your life and you're tending to have anxiety, how to actually achieve this joy that transcends circumstance, to achieve this joy uh, that, that will give you a peace that transcends all understanding. And the reality is that, that you have to, peace is a cultivated crop, that you have to cultivate that, that it just doesn't happen. You can't just leave your life alone and not uh, do the things that God has instructed for you and expect to experience a peace that transcends all understanding. When I was a kid, we moved from uh, one part of, of Los Angeles to another part that actually had more land and, and uh, people had horses and things like that. And it, where we moved, there was lots of fruit trees in our yard. And this was pretty exciting for my mom. We had grapefruit and plums and figs and, and uh, peaches and all of these kind of different things. But there was this really big orange tree. But the problem was with this really big orange tree, the, the people who previously owned said this Orange tree doesn't produce oranges. It's basically a big tree. So for some reason, my mom took this on as a challenge, and, and she's like, this tree is going to produce oranges. So she started to cultivate this tree. She would go out, and she would dig it up, dig up, the, break up the ground and put in fertilizer. She would, she would water it. She would, she would literally go out and sing to it 
every single day. And as a little kid, I thought my mom was nuts. And she's like singing to this tree. And, and I always thought my brother and I would joke, go like, well, that's going to kill it if nothing else will, right? I just... <laughs> And, the, and the, the funny thing was that, you know, first season, second season, nothing happened. And I remember if it was the third season or the fourth season, you know, just a few oranges grew. And I remember thinking, you know, wow, that was a lot of work and a lot of energy just for a few oranges, and she kept on going out there and watering it and singing to it and, and, and cultivating this tree. And then the next season, I kid you not, that tree produced the biggest and most bountiful crop of oranges you've ever seen. We were having apple pie or orange pie, orange stew, orange juice, <laughs> orange, whatever. We started giving away these oranges to all our neighbors, people just passing by, people that we knew. I, it was crazy. And this tree just kept on producing. And the reality is that that tree was designed to, to produce the, these oranges, but it took attention. It took cultivation. It took time to happen. And the same is true with, with peace, um, that it needs cultivating. And in those previous scriptures, Paul talks about really three things that we need to do. You know, number one, when we're praying to God is to praise him as God. Acknowledge that, you know what, God, you are God and I am not. And the second thing is tell him what you need. The power of anxiety is not identifying what it is. When you feel anxious and you, don't, and, and you don't have the discipline to be specific, that this is where anxiety grows and grows and grows. It is, it, is the fertile, it is fertile ground for it to grow. And to be specific and say, you know what, God? I need help specifically in this. If it's with your job or your relationship with your spouse or a friend or, or whatever. And then... Thank him for what he has already done. This is why I'm such a big advocate of journaling, because we forget. And to actually journal during these times and, and tell God what you need. To say, you know what, God? Work is really hard right now. My boss is uh, doing this, or somebody's gossiping about me, or, or something like that. And, and then going back and thanking him for what he's done, but we forget. And when you journal, you can go back and you can actually see, you know, you know what? God, I told God what I needed here and, and I thanked him. But what you're going to realize is it may blow up your faith because in, in a good way that, that so many of us think, you know, God is this, you know, supernatural cosmic vending machine. And we, you know, we put our tithe in and we pick the blessing we want and then we get it and then we go, right? And, and what we realize is that, 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 you know what, you go back and you see, you, I went through this situation and it was really hard and I told him what I needed. And then when I look back, that it, a lot of times he gave me a bigger blessing than I ever thought. He gave me something that I never thought that I should, should ask for. And, 
And you can go back and say, you know what? God is great. God is in control. In verse 8 and 9, he says this, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable and think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. This is so powerful that he goes through, and I can tell you some of the darkest nights that I've ever gone through when the anxiety was going and my mind was being attacked. And the thing is, when you, you know, you're having a problem and you say, I don't, don't think about it, don't think about it, what do you think about? You think about it, right? And I love this, this is God's giving us the tools to be proactive. And, and I have actually, literally, and I tell people to do this, and I don't know if they do or, or don't, but, but it's been very powerful in my life to go through this list and and actually think about those things that are true, not in an abstract way, like, oh, true, thinking about truth. That's a really true thought, you know, whatever. But get really specific and say, okay, what is true? What do I absolutely know is true in, the, in this world? Well, one thing that I know is true is my wife loves me, and she will walk through anything with me. That over the past, uh, well, we've been married 20-something plus years, and we've been together even longer than that. Believe me, we have gone through some very, very hard times. And one thing that I know absolutely true is no matter what happens, I have a true partner in every, every um, aspect of that that we are partnered together, we are knit together in this life and the afterlife. And I know that's true without a shadow of a doubt. I also know that God is faithful. I know that even though, even if things bad happen in my life, I know God is in control. I know without a shadow of a doubt because I've lived it and I've experienced it that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So that doesn't mean that I'm gonna win the lottery. That doesn't mean that I'm gonna, you know, uh, have success or anything like that. But it does mean that, you know what? God's good is preeminent and I have the opportunity to live a life that brings glory to him. And I know that those two things are true. I go through this list. I think about what, what is honorable. I think about people who are honorable. Uh, I think about, uh, you know, people like Michael and Martha Hanna who are honorable people and, and, and think about their lives. I, I, uh, I was talking about Jamie Thompson and Heidi Thompson and just how honorable it was that they adopted uh, a child into their 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 family. And I just thought that's such an honorable thing. You know, and thinking about different things like that. Uh, think about things that are right. I think about when, when people sacrifice for another human being in order for them to get ahead. I think about things like that in situations like that. You know, I think about, you know, going down the things that are excellent. You know, a lot of times I'll, I'll think about uh, the kids that I coach on the cycling team and how they, and a few of them are waving back there. Uh, just, 
you know, when they work hard and, and, and they conduct themselves with excellence out there, uh, not only winning races, but as, as young men and women, uh, just, just living lives of excellence. And, and it's exciting for me. And you know what happens when you go through this list and it's re- you're really specific? What happens? Your anxiety goes, well, yeah, because you've been proactive. And if you fill your mind with things that are true and honorable and right and lovely and pure and, and excellent and worthy of praise, there's no room left for the negative attacks and anxiety that the enemy uses to disrupt and destroy us. And this is the beautiful power of following God's word. But I love this that in verse 9, Paul doesn't just leave us sitting around in the circle, you know, singing kumbaya, right? And going, you know, hey, what's right? What's lovely? What's honorable? Hey, let's think about these things. No, he goes on and he says, now get your rear ends out of your seat and put into practice. He didn't say that part of it, by the way. That's what I said. Keep putting into practice all that you have learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. And I love this two part. It's like, okay, you know what? Get your head right. Get your mind right. Think about these things because anxiety will cripple you. Worry will cripple you. Fill your mind with things that are holy and right and true. And then go out. And put these things into practice. Create more things that are true and right and lovely. Because, you know, we're told that in Ephesians 2.10 that we are God's masterpiece created anew in Christ Jesus to do the things that he's planned for us long ago. We are here to bring beauty and, and purpose into this life and acceptance. And then in verse 10 through 13, He concludes this section by saying, how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned with me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I ever was in need. Now, remember, Paul's sitting in prison writing this letter, and this is so powerful talking about situational faith versus transcendent faith. Not that I ever was in need, For I learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is on a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Now, before I read verse 13, I want to preempt something. This is one of these scriptures that have been taken so far out of context and misused by Christians. And hopefully, I'm gonna blow that up today. The next thing he said is, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Okay? Now, taken out of context, that sounds pretty cool. I can do everything. I can be heavyweight champion of the world. Through Christ who gives me strength. I can win the Tour de France through Christ who give me, gives me strength. I can win the lottery through Christ who gives me strength. Poppycock. That is not 
true. That is not what he's saying, especially in the context. What did Paul just write from prison? He said, look, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have, little or nothing, uh, uh, in every situation, full stomach or empty, plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. What is he trying to communicate here? What's that? But what is he called to do? This whole letter is about living a life worthy of the gospel, of being an ambassador of Christ. And what he is saying here, and if I, I actually rewrote it, and this is Mark's translation. Why are you laughing? Ready for this? I can trust Jesus through the good and bad to give me the strength to live a life worthy of the gospel. This is what Paul is trying to get to in the context of this. Is like, no matter what your situation, when I was locked up in Nigeria and they took my passport and I had no idea if I'd ever see my family again, in that situation, I could bring glory to Christ if I responded correctly. Through, through anything, I could bring glory to Christ. You know what? If, you know, through successes or, or failures that we can bring glory to Christ, that we can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives us strength. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Do it with the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. This is so important when we talk about strength and being able to do things is that we have to know where our strength comes from. And the reality is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead indwells in us and that we need to go forward in God's power and not our own power. This is one thing that, that I wholeheartedly believe that those of us are saved by grace, but we're saved for a purpose. We are saved to make Christ known, to bring beauty and healing and love into this world. And this is when we are at the end of our power, that is when God's power shows up. I wrote this, miracles happen when the finite ends and the infinite being God begins. Miracles happen when the finite, us, our strength ends and when the infinite, God, begins. That is what the beauty of the gospel takes hold. That when we give up on our own power and our own ability to do things and start saying, you know what? I am going to exist in God's power. And this is incredibly freeing because then all your past experiences, all your past hurts, all your, all your past hangups, they, they do not become inhibitors, but they become tools of the gospel, that you are empowered by the gospel, that we see this again and again through Scripture. And this is one of the things as a pastor that I've never understood. When you look at 
at the people in the scripture in our faith that, that we have erected that somehow church ministry leaders have to be plastic or, or cartoon caricatures of, of something that we think a Christian should look like. And you know what? God is not restricted to that. In fact, God does quite the opposite, that he looks for people who have come to their end and he says, you know what? Are you willing to let me take you to the next level? Are you willing, are you ready now to be part of my plan? And that's when the gospel happens. In Hebrews 11, there's a list of what scholars call the Faith Hall of Fame. And all of these people are taken out of the Faith Hall of Fame, who we think are, are great, but not one of them would be qualified to, to lead a ministry in 21st century America. Noah was a drunk. Abraham slept with his maid. Sarah literally laughed at God. Jacob was a deceiver. Rahab was a prostitute. Moses was a stutterer. You can't even hardly say stutterer without stuttering, right? He was also a murderer. Gideon was afraid. Barak was a coward. Samson was promiscuous. And David was an adulterer and murderer. Now, not one of these men and women were good enough on their own. That their finite had to end and where their finite ended, the infinite began and miracles happened, lives were changed. And that doesn't even get into the New Testament and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and everything. And the gospel is this, that not one of us are good enough, that all have sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And it's not, and the gospel is not, I'm going to make myself good enough so I can do these things for God. Quite the opposite is saying, you know what, I've come to a place of surrender where I realize that God, I do not have the power to change on my own and I need your supernatural intervention into my life and I surrender my life to you and let you do with my life what you see fit. Miracles happen when the finite ends and the infinite begins. And I wanna close with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse eight through 10. This is Paul writing. Paul had some great adversity in his life and he, does, he never tells us what it is. We all have different ideas what it might be. But he says this, three times I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. Now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That is why I take pleasure in my weakness and insults and hardships and persecution and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then he is strong. And 
I have had so many people over the years say, Mark, it blows me away that you as a pastor have been open about, uh, you know, being entrusted with anxiety and depression. And I always point back to this. And I said, that's because when I came to my finite end, that I experienced the miracle of the gospel. I experienced the miracle that, you know what? I don't have to be everything to everyone, that I don't have to be the full package. What I need to do is exist in the grace of Jesus Christ, knowing that he is my Savior and my Lord, and being open to the, what he has envisioned for my life, to actually boast about my weaknesses, so God can do it. You guys pray with me.